Good morning to you. Happy October. We, uh, we're starting a new sermon series uh, this morning on the church. Maybe that doesn't seem like something that has a lot to do with what you're going through and what your situation is. But why don't you hold off on that judgment till the end? Because it has everything to do with where you're at. The Bible uses all sorts of different words to describe who and what we are. And over the next six weeks, we want to be reminded of it. And so why do this series? Well, for a couple reasons. Let's just imagine for a second that, and pretend that we're all having an identity crisis. We're all having a real identity crisis where we've all forgotten who we really are. We've forgotten why we're here, and we've forgotten what we're supposed to be doing. It's an identity crisis that knows where we're supposed to be on a Sunday morning, but we don't really remember why. And maybe thinking about this series through the lens of an identity crisis isn't all that far from hitting the mark. Because if we look broadly at the church around us, far and wide, I think we do see a church that's struggling to remember her identity and absolutely has forgotten who she is. On one end of the spectrum, we see a church that's just a parrot for conservative politics and talking points, where its agenda is set by the week's headlines, focused on those culture wars instead of converts, or on the other end of that spectrum, the church has gone all in on liberal ideologies and has rejected historical orthodoxy, labels everything oppression, and all of our problems can be healed through social means. But if you think about it, both of them actually present a really, really small view of the church. Because in the end, they think it both exists to serve earthly notions of power and influence. But at the same time, they also present a small view of God, where he's either really nervous about voter turnout, or he's a God that will never, ever tell you no, because he doesn't want to transgress that ironclad fortress of whatever you call my truth. But then somewhere in the middle... The church has become something else entirely. It's become like the strangest of hospitals that's supposed to help and to heal. But instead, whenever you arrive, you don't get a diagnosis, you get distraction. You're just plopped into a proverbial lazy boy with endless entertainment options paraded before you. But that just presents perhaps the smallest view of God of all. Because it's one that doesn't really know what to do with the hurt and disappointment of this life. But he'll do a great job of distracting you from it. And what if we look closer to home? What about you? Maybe you feel a little bit of an identity crisis surrounding this whole church enterprise. Because your church experience has been a really bumpy road for all sorts of reasons. 
So maybe the reason you're here is because, is because something fell apart elsewhere. Or maybe factors outside of your control forced you to move on and leave behind all that time and energy that you invested. And so you're just sitting here thinking, man, church has just worn me out. And you're discouraged. And you want church to feel alive again. But right now it doesn't. It doesn't feel like home. Because that baggage weighs so heavy. Or maybe you've been here a long time. Maybe you're a, an OG. And you love this place, it's home. But over the last few years, you've seen this church two and a half X in size. And it's not the same as it was before. It's different now. And you could use a reminder of why it's worth it to come, to invest, to serve. Because in the midst of all of that change, you actually feel a pretty significant sense of loss. The second reason we want to do this series on the church is because we want to have a high view of Jesus. And your ecclesiology is a reflection of your Christology. Or very simply put, what you think about the church is a reflection of what you think about Jesus. Because the Bible uses words that don't allow us to separate the two. It's where what you think about one reveals what you think about the other. The value of what you place on one reveals the value that you place on the other. How so? Well, just replace the word church with the other words that the Bible uses and see if it doesn't sound a little bit different. So how can we say we take Jesus seriously if we neglect his body? How can we say how important Jesus is, but we distance ourselves from the family that he shed his blood to create? How can we say we have a high view of Jesus if we disregard his bride, his great love? How can we say we value Jesus if we don't value the very temple where his spirit dwells? What you think about the church reflects what you think about Jesus. And we want to have a high view of both. To treasure Jesus and the beauty of what he has done and the beauty of what he's doing among us. So no matter where you're at, no matter what your relationship with the church is right now or what your history with the church is right now, let's just put all of that to, to the side and I would ask you to make a very profound assumption about yourself as we begin this series. Your presence here is of divine significance and divine sacrifice. Your presence here is of divine significance and divine sacrifice. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know why you're here? And the first thing we're going to look at is how the New Testament teaches us how we are family. Paul says that we are the family of God because we exist and belong 
to the household of God. Now we can read over that way too quickly. We can hear Paul say that, and it sounds like Paul is just using some sweet, warm, fuzzy language to describe the church. Hey guys, we're all family here. Like he's describing the church like it's the Olive Garden, you know? Come on in. Get yourself a little free breadstick and a little glass of wine. Everybody's welcome here. (laughs) No offense to those who love the Olive Garden. It's my favorite place to eat, pal. Thanks. But honestly, here's what we need to see. We need to see how radical it is for Paul to call the church a family. We need to see how radical of a thing it is for Paul to call the church a family. Do we know how much it cost in order for him to say that? And one of the reasons I think it's lost on us is because we live in a really unique time and place relative to the rest of church history. Because unlike any other time before us, we live where we have endless options for where to go to church. You can select whichever one is your favorite and caters to literally whatever preferences you hold dear. I mean, just think about in our own little kind of small community all on its own. You can choose to go woke or speak in tongues. You can find a mega church or a house church. You can choose liturgy or laser lights or King James only. We live inside of a proverbial food court of church options. And what that does over time is it naturally inclines us to think about the church in a really homogenous way. Where we start to think about the church as though it's made up of people who think and act and live just like me. And so what happens then is we hear Paul, the, hear Paul call the church my family, but we subconsciously interpret it as my tribe. And that is exactly what Paul is speaking against. Because in his world, when there was only one church in town, the word family took on a whole new meaning. He's telling people who are entirely different from one another that they are family now. That this family that God has created in Christ is made up of people that they wouldn't naturally choose to engage with. And so there's a natural hostility that has to be broken This is how Paul teaches us about who we are through the work of Jesus. That in order for this family to exist, Jesus had to break down the wall of hostility. So let's ask the question, what hostility? What hostility is Paul talking about? Well, the first issue that the church had to face internally, not externally, but internally within itself, was the hatred and hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Acts tells us about it literally from the very beginning, right after Pentecost. 
The Jewish widows were being cared for, while the Greek widows were not. Because in their world, in the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles, capital H, hated each other. They hated each other. There were deep, deep, centuries-long roots of hostility between them. Jewish midwives were actually instructed if they saw a Gentile woman in labor to not help her because that child was devoted to other gods. Jewish rabbis would pray and thank God that they were not a Gentile. Gentile powers would crush the Jews and make them victims of all sorts of injustice and atrocities. Jews and Gentiles ate differently. They talked differently, dressed differently, lived differently. They everything differently. And between them existed centuries of racial and cultural prejudice and hatred. And now Paul is saying, you are family. You're a family. Don't you know what Christ has done? You're a family now. That's the hostility. But then Paul says that Christ has broken down that wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now I get it. You hear that and you're not not like, oh, oh, I get it now. It's a perfectly clear statement. Of course, by abolishing the law of commands and expressed in ordinances. But everything comes down to that. Because to understand what Paul is saying, you have to take the whole scriptures into view. You got to do a little bit of legwork. Because when he talks about the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, Paul is talking about the Old Testament law and how it had unfortunately become the very basis for their hostility between Jews and Gentiles. It actually became the dividing wall, and that never should have been the case. God never intended for the law to become the basis for the hatred between his people and the world around them. You have to remember why God gave his people the law in the first place. Number one It wasn't so Israel would just check all the boxes and then glory in how awesome they were compared to everybody else. No. God gave the law so that Israel might see how sinful she was. To bring about a deep humility that brought them into greater dependence and relationship with God. So that they'd actually see the depth of the sin in their hearts that required continual, constant sacrifice. It's supposed to bring about a poverty of spirit, not a smugness towards everybody and everything. But secondly, you have to see the law inside of God's greater, ultimate purposes that he was very, very clear about. When God gave the law, he intended it to separate Israel from the world by what they ate, how they dressed, how they lived, how they worshipped. But separation and division are not the same thing. 
Because God also told Israel time and time and time and time again about his heart for the world. From the very beginning, God told Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth, I'm going to bless through you. And then God tells Israel that you are to be a light to the nations so that you would shine bright so that through you, God could draw all of the nations unto himself. Israel was supposed to be a tutor and a mentor to the world to minister among the masses of humanity as a kingdom of priests that would lead the nations unto life with the living God. Israel was supposed to show the world the way. Israel was supposed to have a relationship with the world, not isolate themselves from the world. And by the time Jesus shows up, what is all of Israel waiting for? They are literally waiting for God to bless them because they kept the law so well. And then that blessing was going to be sending them a Messiah that would help them crush the nations. They fundamentally could not have gotten it any more backwards. It's actually why nobody talks about killing Jesus in the Gospels until he starts talking about salvation going out to the Gentiles. That's when they start talking about killing him. And when God shows up live and in the flesh, they hate everything that he has to say. Why? Because Israel had an identity crisis. They pushed God and his purposes to the side. They didn't like how he told them to be disposed towards everybody around them. If you want to hate, then the Christian God is not for you. Plain and simple. This God so loved the world, and Israel could not get over it. They pushed God to the side, and instead, they hijacked the law and used it as the basis for their own self-righteousness and their hatred for the Gentiles. And so what was meant to cultivate humility and blessing just created hostility and hubris. What was meant to help lead the nations unto the living God was just used to shut them out. Israel offers us a constant warning that we can call ourselves the people of God all day long, yet look, yet look nothing for how God wants his people to be. Your ecclesiology is a reflection of your theology. How you understand ourselves, us, is a reflection of how you understand your God. And I get a lot of that is some heavy lifting. But this is exactly what Paul is speaking into. Centuries of hatred and hostility. And if we don't recognize it, then when we hear Paul say family, our understanding of what he means is going to be about half an inch deep. And we're going to completely minimize the work of Christ. And so how does Jesus fit into all this? 
And what does it have to do with us seeing ourselves as a family? Well, in verse 14, Paul says that Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. But he's not just talking about our peace with God. He's saying that Jesus is our peace between each other. Keep in mind that the book of Ephesians is Paul, a Jew, the Jew of all Jews, writing to a Gentile church and saying, Beloved, Christ has brought peace between us. I am disarmed before you. The war between us is over. Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, and now we are one. We're family. Can you imagine how radical it was to hear that? And Paul goes on to say that through the life and death of Jesus, he became that blessing to all nations. And he broke down that dividing wall of hostility. Why? Because he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the entirety of the law. He was obedient in every way. He was the perfect sufferer. He was the perfect sacrifice. And through the gift of his body and his blood, he has brought peace between Jew and Gentile. Why? Because he removed the very basis for their hostility. Because how could the Jews hold the Gentiles in contempt for not fulfilling a law that they couldn't keep themselves? Where's the basis of their superiority when it was fulfilled for them? And for the Gentile, it meant how could they hold on to their animosity when Christ fulfilled the very law that they were never given access to? The very law that was used to push them away has now been fulfilled so that they might be brought near and blessed. Paul's reminding the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer that through Christ, that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And they have both been brought near and reconciled to God. And they equally have been brought near and reconciled to one another. Why? Because they both need Jesus. But Paul goes even further than that. Because when he says peace, he doesn't mean on the playground of life, Jews and Gentiles just shake hands and go their own separate way. No. He says that Christ did all of this so that he might take both Jew and Gentile enemies and unite them together in himself as one new man. That by virtue of their faith in Christ, they both are unified to him, body and soul, which means they are also now unified with one another. And because they're unified with God the Son, that means they now have God as their father. And if God is their father, then everything has to change about how they view one another. 
Because in order to claim Christ as your Savior and God as your Father, it demands that we see and call and recognize one another as brother and sister. We are family. And maybe the beauty of all of that would come together if you just imagine for a second what the Lord's Supper looked like in the early church. The people gathered together there in a home. Some of them were Jews. Others were Gentiles there together. Maybe it was a Gentile home where before a Jew would have never stepped foot inside. Or maybe it was a Jewish home where before a Gentile would have never, ever been invited inside. And yet there they are, gathered around the Lord's Supper with Christ, their peace at the center, his body and blood offered to them. These people gathered around who once passed by one another in contempt, who lived on opposite sides of the tracks, who went the long way around to avoid that neighborhood, who told their kids to avoid those people. And yet now here they are, people who once said, that's my enemy, now saying, this is my family. Gathered around the family table, sharing the family meal, living together in the household of God. There's a lot of talk of reconciliation in our world, but all of it will fall flat unless it realizes that all reconciliation must go through Jesus and lead to this table. Because only in him can the dividing wall of hostility be broken down. And only then can we call ourselves family. So what does all this mean for us? What does this mean for you and me? If you look at the end of this passage, Paul talks about how Christ is the cornerstone. And we are being joined together and being built up in him. So what's he saying? Well, he's just using a metaphor to simply say this. He's telling you to invite Jesus back into how you see church again. To put Jesus back at the very center. To see who you are through Christ. To see who others are through Christ. And to see who we are together through Christ. So how are you to see yourself through Christ? Well, Paul tells you in verse 11, He tells you to remember that you, Gentile, were once separated from Christ. You were alienated and separated from the covenant promises. You were without hope and you were without God. But now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. No longer are you an outsider or an alien or a stranger, but you are now a citizen of an eternal kingdom. You are a member of the household of God. 
You are not here because you found our website. You're not here because somebody you knew went here and you thought you might try it out. Underneath all of that, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ because that is what paid the price of your admission. Christian, you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And you were born into this family by grace. And your presence here is of divine significance and divine sacrifice. And that changes how we see others. Because if that's true of you, it's true of everybody else here too. It doesn't leave any room for smugness or judgmentalism or self-righteousness or hostility. You know what it does? Instead, it actually compels us to see one another as an expression of God's love. Live and in the flesh. Because this person standing in front of me was brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That person you greet on their way in. That new person that you meet. Those crazy kids that you serve in our Sunday school. All of them have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And God has chosen that your life should intersect theirs. Which means that their presence in your life is of divine significance and divine sacrifice. This also changes how we are to see what we are together. We're a family living in the household of God united together in Jesus Christ. And to be honest, that truth confronts each of us in different ways based on where we're at. So maybe you've been distant from the church for a while. Maybe you've never really invested in the life of the church. Maybe you've been in a long season where your attendance has been sparse, off and on. Every now and then, a few times a year, you haven't gotten involved. And it's just been really easy to find a reason not to come. But Paul is wanting you to see what you are a part of. You have been brought near into a family of divine making. And if Paul says that you have been brought into a family, then distancing yourself from that family takes on a whole new perspective. Because it means you've chosen to live as a prodigal. Like one who's left the family behind to go their own way and do their own thing. Like a family member who swoops in for dinner and is back out the door again. Or the one who only shows up on the holidays. And maybe you think to yourself, easy now. I still listen in and have my devotions and read my Bible. Okay. Well, you're a prodigal that reads their Bible then. But do you understand what Jesus is inviting you into? He's inviting you in to his family. Christ 
invite you home? Do you see that he'd give you a family to be built up together with them? But you've tried to have Jesus without having the church. But how much of Jesus do you really expect to get if you avoid the very family that he gave his life to create? Christ died for you to be here. Your presence is of divine significance and divine sacrifice. For others of you, like I mentioned at the beginning, you're new here and you're really tired and worn out. Finding a church has been a struggle. It's been constant disappointment. You want to feel like you're home, but home has been hard to find. You've been trying, but circumstances have brought you here, and you're just exhausted. And to be honest with you, when I first walked through these doors many years ago, I was in the exact same place. Or maybe in a similar vein, maybe the church for you has been the place of some of the deepest hurts and the harshest pains of your life because you are well aware of those walls of hostility. And you hear Paul talk about the church being a family and you want to believe it, but the church hasn't felt like one for a long time and you have grown cynical. And if that's you, then friend, I'll just say this, that there are so many people in this town just like you. You're definitely not alone. And here you are, Have you found a perfect church here? Not even close. But I will tell you this. You did find one that wants to be a place where people can learn to trust the church again. You found one that wants to be a place where people can learn to love the church because it's where they experience the power of Christ who unifies his people, who joins them together and builds them up into one new man because he himself walks among them. There's a place for you here because we believe that your presence here is of divine significance and divine sacrifice. And lastly, just for those who've been here a long time, We've seen a lot of change together, haven't we? Especially since June of 2019. Who would have thought that we'd two and a half X in size since then? But maybe that actually makes you feel a little robbed of the church that you loved just the way it was. And so it's been easy to fade into the background. And maybe if you're honest, there's a little hostility in your heart about what we've become. But if this passage tells us anything, it at least should tell us that when Christ is at work, it's going to put us in uncomfortable situations with unfamiliar people. And really, maybe the worst thing possible is to be at a church that always stays the same year after year, and never, ever changes. That should scare us. 
Because it probably means that the same thing is true of us too. Because in our heart of hearts, we weren't really looking for Christ. We were just looking to be comfortable. So maybe Jesus has changed this church because he wants to change us. And he wants to change you. So let's all remember something together. Let's remember how life-changing the church can be. Because it's where Christ himself continues to walk in this world. It's where he gathers his people and it's the place where they are brought near. Let's remember how life-changing the church can be. Last week, Ricky asked me if I'd share my story with the youth boys. And I told them that whenever I was in college, I finally went to church one Sunday because I got tired of feeling guilty from lying to my parents that I'd been going. But that day inside that church, the course of my life forever changed when someone walked up to me and said, Hi, I'm John. I kid you not, those three simple words are when the rest of my life began. My life was changed because some dude that lives in Papua New Guinea now said hi. Because Jesus walked among us. And surrounding you right now are stories of how Jesus is walking among us, knitting his family together piece by piece, person by person, brick by brick. He's brought people near whose first meaningful experience of a family is at this church. There was someone not long ago who right after their parent passed away said, I've never been in a place where I've experienced and received so much love. I didn't know this existed. There was another person who said, this is the first place I feel like I've ever had a real friend. He's also brought people near so that we could walk with them through some of the darkest and most difficult days of their life. Ask Antonio and Deanna Gray what it's meant to be surrounded by a loving family during a fight with cancer. Ask Nancy Rose about the nonstop visitors coming to sit at her bedside while she recovers from surgery. Or ask Isaac and Abigail Okiere when little Liam was in the hospital only weighing just a few ounces. And they literally had to ask Julie to tell the community groups to stop bringing them meals because their fridge was so full. And then to hear Abigail at Liam's naming ceremony tell all of her African friends about the family that she had found. I do not know what the future holds. But I do trust that Jesus is telling the story of this church. And he is determining her times and her seasons. Because it's his family. And might we be a place that reflects the beauty of what Jesus has done to create it. And let's trust that he's doing something that's far more beautiful than you or I could ever envision.
our preferences do not hold a candle to the purposes of Jesus Christ. So who are we? We are a family of divine significance and divine sacrifice. So let's be a family that chooses to exist for the glory of Christ in the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you shed your blood when it should have been ours. In your body, you broke down the dividing wall of hostility. And that means more than we could ever comprehend. We confess that we're slow to recognize that and we're quick to forget it. But we pray that you would continue to build us up upon you, our cornerstone, and knit us together and unify us in yourself to form one new man in this time, in this place, for the purposes that you have for us. We ask that we would be open to the story that you were telling in this church. Help us to die to ourselves and live unto you, individually and collectively. We pray that you would make us into a place where people can come and heal, where those who have existed on the margins of the people of God can be brought back into full participation in the life of this worshiping family. We ask that everything that you've done thus far would simply be the preface of a far more beautiful story. We entrust ourselves to you. And we ask that you would meet us at your table and feed us unto everlasting life. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And everybody said, Amen.